little dictionary and you're writing a, a dictionary entry, you know, imagine somebody mailed to you and they're like, hey, we want you to write up the definition in the dictionary or dictionary.com or whatever. Um, what is a Christian? And your, your definition is what everybody's going to read. How would you define what a Christian is? And uh, perhaps you would um, come up with certain things we do or certain things we believe or um, certain ways we act or rituals we come come to or imagine somebody from Chicago, one of the Chicago radio stations or news stations is, is coming up and they're walking around talking to people on the street and you're walking around on the square and they come up, hey, hey, we're doing a, we're kind of doing like this news story and we're just kind of figuring out like what are, what do people think a Christian is? So what, what do you think? What is a Christian? And then it's like, oh, you have to give your on the spot answer of what a Christian is. And you're telling, you're telling them uh, your answer. And when you wake up in the you can think about it a little more personally. When you wake up in the morning, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? When you wake up, I'm a Christian. And what does that mean for me to be a Christian? If you had to pick just one thing that is most fundamental about what is a Christian, what, what would it be? And last week we started a sermon series called Good News, and there's an exclamation point at the end of it. So it's like, good news! You know, it's, it's supposed to be exciting. And the danger for us everything happening in our world, you know, a global pandemic, you know, did you ever think that in your lifetime you're going to tell people like, yeah, I'm living in a, you know, the pandemic, we just talk about that like it's a common thing, like, yeah, pandemic, and did you ever think you'd be living in a time like that? Everything in our world is changing, you know, eight months ago, everything was different, we were living differently, and not only is the pandemic, but things going on um, with racial inequality and all these things in our world are changing, and the danger for us in the middle of that is to forget who we are. Our world has changed, but what I want us to remember in this series is that, is that who God is and who we are because of Him hasn't. And so this eight-week series, what we're doing is we're looking at the gospel, the good news of who God is, what He's done, and who we are because of that. We're going back to kind of the fundamentals, the basics, the, which, I mean, really aren't the basics. They're the everything of who we are as Christians see who God is and what he's done through Jesus, we learn who we are if we've trusted in him. And last Sunday we started with a diagnosis message. We went back to Genesis 3 and we covered a tool um, that is in shorthand. It's called fruit to root. And the big idea that we looked at was your view of God grows the fruit in your life. And if I could get an assistant, um, this is kind of a, somebody could pass these out for me. Just kind of give two of, you can give two of them to every person. This is like a um, a summary of what we went over last week, and I encourage you if you haven't, and this is what we drew on the board last week, but that's maybe a little more detailed version of it. Um, give two to everybody. There's 30, so there should be enough. And that's what we went over last week. So if you picture yourself as a tree and you have fruit in your life, like we kind of grow fruit in our life, like our behaviors, our feelings, our attitude, actions, habits, things we're doing in, in our life. That's the fruit of our tree. And at the root is our view of God, our beliefs about Him, our view of Him, um, the, the way we're seeing Him or the way we're feeling about Him. That's the, the root. And whatever's at the root is going to grow the fruit. So our beliefs, our view of God at the root is going to grow the fruit, our actions, behaviors, our attitudes, our feelings. And a good view of God is going to grow good fruit. A bad view of God is going to grow bad fruit in our life. And so we're going to come back to this concept all throughout this uh, eight-week series. And so last week was laying this foundation, and so I hope by the end of it, you're going to be able to get a really 
missed last week's sermon, um, I'd recommend hopping on our website or finding the podcast. You can find the, the podcast links on the website too. I um, mean, just listening to that sermon, but you're not going to be total, you're not going to be left behind because um, we're going to use it again today. Let's return to our opening question. What is a, a Christian? The way you define a Christian, if you're looking at this, the way you define a Christian, what a Christian is, is going to depend on your view of who God is. What is a Christian? It's going to depend on your view of who God is. And your view of who God is and your view of what a, who, what a Christian is is going to drastically affect how you live your life. It's going to drastically affect the fruit in your life, whether it's good fruit or whether it's bad fruit. And so it's going to be, your view of what a Christian is is going to be affected by your view of God, what he's like, and it's going to drastically affect what, how you're living. So you think a Christian, what is a Christian? Oh, it's somebody who keeps the rules. That's going to be what the fruit in your life is. And it's going to be very much connected. And this question comes from a quote by an author named J.I. Packer. And if you've never heard of him, um, he's a pretty famous author. Um, he actually went home to be with the Lord last month on July 17th at the age of 93. Um, just a couple, just one huge thing he did, the Bible translation we use, or I most often preach from the ESV translation, he was the general editor for that translation. And so he's done a lot of work in the Christian world, and one of his, his most famous book probably is Knowing God. And this quote uh, comes from his book. He starts off with, what is, the, what is a Christian? And so here's the full quote he, he does. What is a Christian? The question could be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. So he's saying a Christian is one who has God as Father. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who has God as Father. And on the next page he goes on to say this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So he says a Christian is one who has God as father. If you were interviewing, you know, if a news reporter was coming up to J.I. Packer as he's walking down the street and said, what is a Christian, J.I. Packer? He would say, a Christian is one who has God as father. And that's the truth that I want us to be marveling at today, that the truth that if you've trusted in Jesus, you have God as father. And he calls you his beloved son or his beloved daughter. Jesus himself said in John 17 that if, if somebody has trusted in him, that God loves them with the same love that God loves Jesus. God, Jesus knows God's love. Jesus knows God loves him. He's like, the Father loves me. And he says, if you've trusted in me, the Father loves you in the same way he loves me. That same divine love that God the Father has for Jesus, God the Son, that eternal love they've had from the beginning of time. Jesus is sinless all his entire life. Now that same love that God the Father has for Jesus, he now has for you if you've trusted in Jesus. That God the Father looks at you with the same love, that same love that wells up in him for Jesus is the same love that wells up in him for you. At this very moment when he looks at you, if you've trusted in Jesus. But we struggle with this idea 
that God could love us so much or that he could love us so freely. It has to be based on something besides that. How could he love me in that way? And people have always struggled with this. Even in the first decades of the church, even Jesus died and this church gets started, this movement of people believing in Jesus and trusting in him and saying, wow, we're, we're God's children now. It's People have struggled with it from the very beginning of being God's children based on nothing except God's free choice of them to be their children. Usually we think our status with God is based on what we do. We either think that we're good enough to earn God's love, or we think that we'll never be good enough for God to love us. But if you start to look at passages in the New Testament, I was putting together all these passages this week of where uh, Paul or, or other uh, teachers in the Bible talk about, or Jesus talks about God's love for us as his children, and the teaching about our adoption of God's family, almost all of them emphasize and make clear that being a child of God has nothing to do with human effort. This is an issue that was coming up all the time. There's this emphasis that this has nothing to do with what you've done. This has nothing to do with human effort. And so that's why our big idea for today is this. God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. That's the message I want us to walk away with today. If you were to say something every day when you wake up this next week, say, God the Father's love for me is not based on what I do. I want us to have a grand view of God's amazing, unearned, fatherly love for us. But to get there, we need to look at how we can try to base God's love on what we do because some people base God's love on what they do and they conclude well I'm never going to be good enough so God will never love me and some people base God's love on what they do and conclude well I am good enough therefore God loves me based on what I do some people say he'll never love me I'll never be good enough some people say I am good enough therefore he does love me and so you can grab the tree diagram and we can kind of break this down into four different types of people there's two types of people that say well if he loves me based on what I do, well, I'll never be good enough. God is just always going to be against me. And there's one type of person who says, I'm not loved by God uh, because I'm doing what's bad, but I don't really care. So the fruit in their life is they're just kind of doing whatever they want. It's like, they're, I'm not loved by God because what I do is bad, but I don't really care. Like, I just want to live a sinful life. I just like doing the stuff I'm doing. All this stuff, sin is better than God. I like living sinful lifestyle so they're doing the bad they're seeing bad fruit in their life and they're just doing it they don't care that their attitude is wrong they're they're doing the bad things but they don't really have a care about it they're like i know god doesn't love me but i don't doesn't really bother me i'm breaking the rules and it's i'm not bothered by it so then so they have this kind of reckless lifestyle and they know god doesn't approve but they don't care because they're like sin is more fun it's just more fun than god and so what are they thinking about? What does God do? Uh, well, God sucks the fun out of life. Uh, he, he makes rules, he enforces rules, and he judges. And that's lame. And so they've rejected that, and they've just said, well, sin is more fun, and so I'm going to do that. And who do they view God is? What is God like for them? Well, he's kind of this cosmic party pooper in the sky. He's too strict. He's an angry judge in the sky. He's this rule maker. He's this enforcer. So God for them is, he's a 
judge, a rule maker, a party pooper. What does he do? He kind of sucks all the fun out of life. And so they're saying, well, I'm not doing good stuff and God doesn't love me. And I don't really care. The fruit of their life is, you know, I'm just going to sin and have a reckless lifestyle. It's more fun that way. And so they've rejected God. The other type of person who's saying like, well, I know what I'm doing doesn't earn God's love, um, but they're bothered by it. They're saying, I'm not loved by God, and I never will be because I'm too bad. The, the bad stuff in my life is just, God could never get over this. And what they're looking at God, they're feeling the fruit in their life is, is guilt and shame. The other person is like, well, I don't feel guilty or shameful about it because I don't really care. This is just what I wanted to do. But this person's feeling guilt and shame because they're saying, like, well, I know it's bad, but God could never love me. It's just way too bad. And so they're seeing... What does God do? He judges. He hates them. He's disappointed. He disapproves. He rejects them. He could never love them or forgive them. And so who is God to them? He's a judge. He's angry. He's a lawgiver. He just looks at them and he's like, you know, I could never love you. You're too bad. And so they also don't turn to God. Neither of these two turn to God because they just think, you know, he's, that's what he's like. But now the third type of per- these are the last two types of people say, well, God does love me because of what I do, and he, God is for me. God's on my side. And the first one, they, this is com- pretty common today. They say, um, I'm loved by God because I'm not doing anything wrong. They're, because they think uh, He accepts me no matter what. Because you know I am who I am. I was born this way. It's kind of like the person who says that you, you just have to accept me for how I am, and if you're not going to accept me, well, that's just too bad. I just won't be friends with you. Like, this is just how I am, and you have to accept me. And it's like you have to just tolerate my behavior, and that's how it's going to be. And so the fruit in their life is saying, you, no one can tell me I'm wrong. And they're actually kind of judgmental. They make rules that others have to follow, and they, they judge people, um, saying, uh, I'm going to reject you. Uh, and they don't think they have to be forgiven for anything. This is kind of people are saying like, well, I'm, I want everyone else to be tolerant of my behavior. And if you're not going to tolerate my behavior, well, okay, well, I just won't have you in my life. Like you need to accept me for who I am. And so what they're looking at, God is saying, well, God, what are you going to do, God? Uh, you need to accept me for who I am. Uh, don't ask me to change. Um, and God hates people who don't accept everyone. God is super accepting. God is all loving. Um, God just kind of tolerates everybody's behavior. That's what God is like. He doesn't tell anybody what to do. He just is like, oh, yeah, it's fine. I just love everyone how they are. And so that, this person is like, yeah, God loves me because nothing I do is wrong. That's just how God is. He just you know, takes us in exactly how we are. And then the last type of person would probably be most um, connected to what the Pharisees are like in the Bible. They say, I'm loved by God because I do everything right. So this first one is, I'm loved by God because I don't do anything wrong. Well, nothing I'm doing is wrong, so of course God loves me. He accepts me how I am. And the second type of person says, I'm loved by God because I do everything right. So uh, what I do makes me good enough. I'm good with God because of what I do. So their fruit is often you know, religious activity, uh, making sure they're keeping all God's rules, tend to be prideful, self-righteous, uh, judgmental. And so what's God doing? He's making sure we're keeping all the rules. And so this person's making sure they're keeping all the rules and making sure everyone else is keeping all the rules. And so God is this lawgiver who's making sure everyone's keeping the laws. And so what are they doing? Oh, I'm, I'm good with God because I'm keeping all the laws. So they make sure everyone else is keeping the laws and they're judgmental and self-righteous. 
And all four of these people live independent of God. They make something else bigger or better than God. Because the first thing, sin is better than God. So they just live in sin. It's like, well, God's sucking the fun out of life. Sin is better, so I'm going to do that. And the second one thinks their sin is bigger than God's. They believe, my stuff, my sin is too bad. God could never love me or forgive me, so they just never turn to him. My sin is too bad. God could never love me, so I'm never going to turn to him. The third one makes themselves the center of the universe. Everything revolves around them. And if God can't accept me how I am, well, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't accept me exactly as I am and not tell me to change anything. So God just accepts me. And anyone else who won't accept me how I am, well, I'll just they can't be in my life either because you just have to take me how I am. And if you can't do that, then, okay, good riddance. They're always right, and not even God should dare question that. And the fourth thinks they can live up to God's standards and earn his love and acceptance. And they look down on others when other people can't do that. But you'll notice that all of these have a, a lopsided view of God. Three of them see God entirely as somebody who's just this lawgiver and judge. And then the other one, the one that says God's all accepting, is just doesn't see any of God's laws or commands, but sees them entirely as merciful and loving. And so there's just these lopsided views. We need to see a full view of God, looking at um, how people enter God's family. How does God actually have us enter his family? And that's how we can actually see how who God is and what he does. And so if you want to write down passages, where I'm going to speak about them quickly. But if you want to write down them for your later looking up, um, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 that we read earlier, but I'm going to mention, so Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, I'm going to mention John 1, 12 through 13, and I'm going to mention John 14, 6. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, John 1, 12 to 13, and John 14, 6. And then uh, a little later, I'm going to mention 1 John 3, 1 and 1 John 4, 10. 1 John 3, 1 and 1 John 4, 10. So how do sinners who are far from God enter God's family? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 that we read earlier. tells us this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before anything was created, what did he choose us for? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us, and so that we should be holy and blameless. So that's God upholding his law and commands. So God wants us to be holy and blameless. So you can't do away with God's law and commands. He wants us to be able to follow them. But then, then what does he say? In love, so you can't do away with God's love either. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the Beloved. And so you also can't do away with love or grace. So it's, okay, God wants to uphold his law and his commands, 
but God also is doing it in love, and it's to the praise of his glorious grace. So grace is unmerited favor. How do we get into this family? Well, once you're in the family, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. You can't earn your way in. You don't make yourself worthy of his love. And it's before the foundation of the world, before you even existed, before you even had a thought about God, before you did anything to deserve something from him, in love he chose you. And in, once you're in, it's now not sweet. I was so good. You know, God was picking amongst all the people of the earth, and he said, this one is the best, so I'm going to pick him. It's not like, you know, middle school or elementary school when people are picking for teams, and you're sitting there like, I hope that I'm good enough to be picked for someone's team. And now it's like, sweet, God picked me for his team, and now we're going to have like this all-star team. It's like, no, in love, to the praise of his glorious grace, God is choosing people bringing people into his family. It's not because, wait, now we're this all-star family team. It's like God's doing it to the praise of his glorious grace. There's nothing about us that gets us in. He chooses to adopt in love, and we enter his family by no human effort. If we looked up John 1, 12 through 13, it, um, and Jesus says there, he's emphasizing that all who believe in Jesus uh, he gives the right to become children of God. And it says, by no human will, by no human effort, but they're born of God. It's not by anybody's physical descent. It's by not by our will, by, not by our human effort. He's emphasizing it's just by believing in Jesus that we become God's children. And John 14, 6, famous verse, that uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not by our will, by our effort, by our physical descent, you know, whether... Your, what your ethnicity is, it's just through Jesus that we've made a way. And that's what Ephesians says too, that in Jesus, in Christ, uh, through Jesus, in love, he said, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And we had this broken relationship with our Creator that's healed through Jesus' death. That's how we enter his family. And so we either accept the relationship with God on his terms or we reject it. And, and that's how we looked at all four of those people earlier. They're this bad tree. And all of them are rejecting relationship with God on his terms. And we talked about how we need to repent, re, 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 repent from our ways of doing relationship with God on our terms. And we need to turn and believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We need to turn to enter relationship with God on his terms. And we, the terms are pretty amazing. You can't do anything to earn this. You do nothing to deserve it. You actually deserve the opposite of everything he's offering us. And he says, I've already fully demonstrated my love and my desire and my willingness to fully forgive you if you want it. But the only way this relationship will work is if you receive forgiveness because you can never make up for the wrongs you've done. All you can do is accept my free offer of grace and let me love you the way I want to love you. And that's pretty great terms. Like <laughs> You just have to receive it. Just let me love you the way I want to love you. Let me forgive you the way I want to forgive you. Stop trying to earn it. And we just so often are like, eh, you know, I want to kind of work for it, or I want to do this. I want it to be my way. And God just says, no, it's relationship on my terms or none. We need to just receive it and rejoice in it. And First John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's just like marveling. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. 
and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is, you know, a nice $10 word that means uh, to something that removes wrath. The, the wrath that should be God's wrath, God's anger against our sin has been removed by Jesus. Jesus took it all on. And in the Bible, when you start looking at times when Paul brings up our adoption as God's children, he's bringing it up when people are in danger, or often he's bringing it up when people are in danger of basing their relationship with God on what they do. And Paul warns them, warns them, don't slip into that mentality. Don't become slaves to fear. Don't base your relationship with God on what you do, on your obedience, on your performance, on how you live. You're children of God. Rest and rejoice in that. Don't slip back into that mentality. You've been brought out of that. Stop living that way. You're over here. You're children of God. You're heirs. You're living in grace. Don't go back here, he tells them. So our big idea is God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. And the miracle of grace is that when God looks at you, he's filled with the same love for you that he has for Jesus. He doesn't look at you and see a dirty, rotten sinner that he rejects. And so often we still look at ourselves as, you know, this is who I am. I'm just kind of garbage. Just a dirty, rotty, rotten sinner, but you know, God still loves me anyway. That's not how God looks at us anymore. He looks at us and he says, that's my son. That's my boy. That's my girl. That's how God looks at us. He looks at us the same way he looks at Jesus. And there's scripture to back that up. Jesus himself says it when he's praying for us in John 17. He says to God, you love them with the same love you love me. He doesn't see, look at that garbage in my family, but I got to love them anyway. He sees us, his son. He sees his daughter. And he has the same love for us, the same affection. He's not like, well, Jesus, look what I got stuck with. He has the same love for us. He looks at you and sees a beloved son or daughter and he needs lights. That's the amazing love that we're given. There's no hostility when he looks at us. It's been taken away by Jesus. When he looks at you, there's love and joy and peace. The fruit of the Spirit, those are the first three fruits of the Spirit that those are the character of God that the Spirit's putting in us. And so that's the same character God has for us. That we're supposed to treat other people with and have love, joy, and peace with other people. Wouldn't you think that's the character of how God treats us and looks at us? In one book I read recently talked about how everyone is is born with this father hunger in us, a, a desire to be seen and known and loved by a father. That a father that sees us and knows us and someone who knows us and still loves us. And God knows everything bad about us, and he still loves us. I mean, there's nobody in the world that knows everything bad about you. But God knows everything about you. He still loves you. He knows the bad things you are going to do, and he still loves you. He also sees and knows all the good about you. And he celebrates it. He gets excited about it. We are made to rest and rejoice in the security of his love. We are made to enjoy the stability of it, and this love roots us and grounds us because we don't deserve it. We never deserved it in the first place, and there's nothing we can do to earn it, and we just need to fall back into it and let ourselves rest in it and soak it up. God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do. And we may think, I find myself thinking this, yeah, I, I, know, I know that's how people become Christians. But once you're 
in the family, God expects us to act a certain way. And now, kind of strict. You know, God's super excited about all these lost people getting in the kingdom. But once we're in, now it's time to shape up. It's time to you know, act, act our part. Well, I think that way often. God's more gracious to people outside his family than he is inside the family. And we can often believe that lie. Like God is a, he loves people more before they trust in Jesus. And after we trust in Jesus, he has like buyer's remorse. Like, wow, I didn't know I was adop- adopting such a messed up person here. A bunch of losers. These kids are just a bunch of sinners. They can't get their act together. Like I thought before I adopted you, I was getting great kids. And now that you're in, now I've just got to deal with you. And I can often you know, just feel that way. Like, oh, you know, we can talk about, let's go reach the laws and tell them how great God is. And not, But all of us in his family are like, Man, God is just super disappointed with me all the time, and we're telling people about God's grace, but we don't feel it at all. And so how does God treat sinners in his family? What is he like when we mess up as his adopted children in his family? And for me, there's no better picture. We talked about this early in the year. There's no better picture than the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And there's the short background of this story is uh, Jesus tells a story. And there's a son of this father who just really messed up. He sinned against his father big time, and he realizes how bad he messed up. He decides to return home and tell his dad how much he messed up. And Jesus is telling this story as a, a picture of the initial entrance into God's kingdom and his family. But why should we think God's character changes once we're in this family? Like, is God like a bait and switch? Like, I'm going to bait you with my awesome, gracious, loving character to get you in, and then once you come into this kingdom, it's like, aha, you know, bait and switch. Like, I'm not really that way. Like, that was just kind of the advertisement. But now that you're in, like, you know, that's not how I am. I go back to this picture over and over to remind myself, that's what God's like toward me now as his child. And so, if, you know, the, there's two, the five verses I want us to, I'm not going to reread them. No, sorry, I am going to reread them. Luke 15, 20 to 24. 15, 20 to 24. Look at how the, so his father messes, this kid messes up, he returns home. Luke 15, 20 to 24. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father looking for his son, and he's waiting for him. The father moves towards his son. The father's eager to embrace his son. The father showers him with love and affection. The father doesn't rub his nose in his son's sin. The father clothes his dirty son with the best robe and calls the servants to come and slay the fattened calf. Let's get this party going. The father isn't ashamed of his son. He's calling the, the relatives and neighbors and the, the workers. Let's throw this party for him. It's not like, get, get inside the house. I don't want anybody to see you that you're coming home. The father's overjoyed to have his son home. The father delights in and rejoices over and takes pleasure in his son. And when I sin, I can tend to imagine that God kind of puts me in the doghouse for a while. Oh, you're home? 
and get, you know, just get in your room, just get outside. It keeps me at a distance for a while until I've cleaned up a bit and his anger can be cooled off and then maybe things will go back to normal. But it's not like he's excited for me to be around. He just kind of puts up with me. But look at how Jesus wants us to see God. Look at how Jesus sees God. Look at how Jesus sees his Father and how he wants us to see his Father. That He wants everyone to see that his Father is waiting on the porch, ready to run and embrace us with love as soon as he sees us. It doesn't matter how dirty we are with sin. It doesn't matter how much bad we've done. If we're turning to him in forgiveness, he cannot wait to give out. He runs to him. We can't even get the apology out of our mouth before we even can tell him we're sorry. He's already picking us up off the ground and hugging us and kissing us and saying, you're home. I love that you're here. He's forgiven us before we even say, I'm sorry and gotten our speech out of our mouth. When we feel like we've messed up way too bad for him to ever forgive us or love us, this is the picture we need to go to. And When we're seeing bad fruit in our life and we trace it to a wrong view of God's, it can help to, you know, we're saying like, man, I'm seeing this bad fruit and I'm thinking I'm just too bad for God to love. I'm, you know, you get down to this view of God of like, I just think he's angry, despises me, hates me, or he's far from me, or I'm in the doghouse or whatever it is. Sometimes it can ask, help to ask, when you have a view of God down here, does this remind me of anybody in my life who's treated me this way in the past? Someone that you wanted to be there for you, to see you, know you, and love you when you messed up, and you wanted them to be close, but they weren't. Because they're supposed to point you to God the Father and show you what he's like, but they didn't. And we're not only left with a father hunger in our life, but a father wound, and it may be was your dad or a different parent or just other people in your life that you looked to they said you were supposed to be there to show me this and all you know as perfect as maybe you felt some of your dads were every single parent falls short in some way so let's return to the image used a few weeks ago of us being a sponge and if we're if we're a dry sponge going around the world with this father hunger. We're all born with this father hunger, longing to be embraced by somebody who sees us and knows us and and loves us. You know, sponges, when they're dry, they just kind of like soak up anything they come in contact with, you know, gasoline or whatever it is. They're just like longing to suck something up. And so if we're going around in the world um, dry, we're just longing for anybody, you know, horizontally, like if I'm this dry sponge, I'm going to be trying to you know, suck up, would you see me, would you know me, would you love me, would you embrace me, and I'm going to be trying to suck it up from everybody horizontally, and we're just going to be looking for that everywhere, and we're ultimately we're made to be filled by him, and a, if you're a dry sponge with a father hunger, seeking to be seen and known and loved, you're going to be trying to fill it from other people, but our Heavenly Father is the only one who can truly fill us up. And so when we get, you know, filled up fully, we talked about this when we were um, looking at the prayer in Ephesians 3, when we actually get filled up, even if I put this in here for a little bit, it doesn't get fully filled up. When we just lay back and soak in that love and rest in it and rest it secure, I can just lay in it, can't, I can just soak in it for as long as I want. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. I can just take it all in. But now instead of going around as a dry sponge, just like 
please, please, please see me, know me, love me, and trying to fill that hunger and that ache from other people and that longing. But now instead, now we're actually somebody who's filled with all that fullness of God, able to squeeze something out to other people, being somebody who's, now we're filled with all that fullness of God, to be able to give out love to other people, instead of like, please, I just need you to affirm me and, and give that to me, trying to fulfill that father hunger in other people. And now we can actually, but I mean, if you keep squeezing out, we, get, we need to be connected to God continually. So for receiving, if we look at God and we're receiving all this from Him, who He is, the picture we've been talking about, what He does, who we are, is we're these sponges that are receiving from Him. I just want you to take a moment and think on the top of that um, sheet, that fruit part, where it says, I would be, I would be less out blank, I would be more blank, and I would do, just take a you know, quick couple seconds and think, what would be true if you had this picture of God we've been talking about today, that God's love, God the Father's love for you is not based on what you do for you, and not who you are, you're just receiving that love and being filled up for it. What fruit would be in your life? Take a moment just to think about that. Maybe you want to pray, maybe you want to jot something down. What would be the fruit for you? One closing thought is something that, as a community, we would do is, um, if we had God as our Father, something that every command, almost every command in the New Testament is geared toward a community of believers that both Jesus and everybody, all his apostles who are teaching after him, are talking to people as brothers and sisters in Christ because they all have God as Father. So often we can think about like uh, putting our biological families above our church families. That's not at all how Jesus the New Testament thought about it. Jesus in fact said, who is my family? People who do the, the will of God, who enter into, who have God as their Father. So what is a Christian? Is someone who has God as Father. And that's our ultimate allegiance above all other biological allegiances. Of course, we take care of our biological families and we still have commitments to them, but now what is the true definition of a Christian? What defines us above all things is that someone who has God as Father. Therefore, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of the fruits for that is now how do we treat one another like that Bob is my brother and that Jean is my sister and Larry is my brother. Is that how do we get into that mindset where it's like my commitment if you know my commitment to my 
biological sister, Kelly, how do I have as strong of a commitment to Bob and Jean as I do to her or to my parents? You know, how does that, how do I begin having commitments like that to all of you and how do we have it to each other? Like, and so often we can have, think of church as kind of, our church family is like, that's kind of like an optional, but I'm really committed to like my biological family. How do we build those commitments and how do we treat each other um, and show the world this is the love that God has for us and now it's embodied in this group of people that God is our father, we're brothers and sisters. Jesus is also our brother and that's kind of another reality too. Think of, so let's, let's pray um, as we, for this love to get into us um, as God's children individually and as a family. Father, thank you for loving us not based on what we do because of your grace. Thank you for bringing us into your family through Jesus by forgiving us of our sin. Would you, Lord, increase our awareness and our feeling and experience of your love, increase our love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.